G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. Previously, on Who Killed Leanne Holland? In 90% of the cases... The victim knows her attacker. I recall at approximately 8am on the morning, I was approached by Leanne Holland and she mentioned to me that she wished to dye her hair. I obtained a box of hair dye and I told Leanne that she could use this to dye her hair and that she could wait until Melissa came home so that she could dye her hair. So here we have Graham Stafford who knows Leanne and he's actually the last person on the Crown evidence to see her alive. Um, He takes 68 swabs of blood So he tests all of these with this presumptive test and every time he's testing, he's getting a positive result indicating that the preliminary test is picking up blood. Melissa could have placed her shopping in the boot of Graham's car, but she just chose to put the groceries on the back seat. I wonder what would have happened had she opened the boot because on the Crown case, Leanne Holland was in the boot. A 610 Media production. This is... Who Killed Leanne Holland? Chapter 5. House of Cards. G'day, I'm Jamie Paltz. And I'm Graham Crowley. And this is Who Killed Leanne Holland? G'day, Graham, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks, Jamie. And you? Yeah, mate, I'm, I'm pretty well, thank you. Last chapter, we did mention that we were getting a fair bit of feedback, uh, both good and bad. That's right, yep. This case does have quite a bit of contention and some, you know, there's lots of um, opinions about it from both sides of the fence. And we welcome your support and your feedback and we appreciate it. However, we do want to touch on a few ones that we are getting and, and one in particular we got the other day that was quite negative, really. That's right, yeah. We don't know this person. We don't know if they were a male or a female. They didn't leave their real name and they didn't give a correct email address. So I had a friend read this out. We have deleted some names as appropriate. Here's what the email said. Getting your information from Julie, whose sister was assaulted by, is hardly impartial. Thing about 
is he molested heaps of girls and is a garbage human, but murder was not his M.O. Modus operandi. Oh, and he passed a polygraph. Your hero Stafford failed his polygraph. Two things can be true at once. He's a pedophile, and Stafford is a pedophile, and child killer too. So, Graham, when you got that on your website, what were your initial thoughts? I thought um, whoever wrote it, Jamie, was well informed. They had the name of uh, Pedophile Pete, which is not commonly known, and they also had the name of uh, Julie, who you interviewed um, previously, I was intrigued as to where or what they know, what they do enabled them to to have that information. And and just on the fact that it said, you know, getting your information from, from Julie, whose sister was assaulted by blank, is hardly impartial. When I got information from Julie, it was purely about Leanne and who else better to ask about Leanne than someone who was best friends with her, you know? I agree. And if they, if they do want to say something and they want to um, have their piece or, you know, give us some information, then give us their real name and their contact details and we'll see where it goes. But That's right. So, you know, he, he was sort of well-informed, uh, as I said, but he was misinformed about the polygraph. Um, my understanding is Graham Stafford didn't fail the polygraph. There's, there's three outcomes from a polygraph test. It's pass, fail and uh, inconclusive. And uh, Graham Stafford's result was inconclusive. Okay. And there's many different reasons for that result. So that's probably for a later chapter. That's right. Yeah. Too too much to talk about here. Okay. And also uh, we had on the last chapter, we had Joe Crowley, the criminal barrister, come on and explain some blood evidence. Now we will hear, hear from Joe more later on. However, there is some confusion because you both have the same name, Crowley. Is there any relation there? We, um, we've talked about that, Jamie. We think there is probably a family connection going back some generations, but we've never actually explored it. So at this stage, it's unknown. There's just a lot of double-ups in this case, isn't there? A lot of Grahams, a couple of Crowleys. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't there ever? <laughs> anyway, in the previous chapter, in Chapter 4, we heard about the evidence surrounding the disappearance of Leanne Holland the incredible quick response by the Queensland Police and the evidence that convicted Graham Stafford. It was a strong circumstantial case supported by forensic evidence. In this chapter, I want to take you through the other evidence, the evidence the Queensland Police doesn't want to talk about, the evidence they wish would go away, the evidence that doesn't fit Graham Stafford, the evidence that shows the other person or persons to have been more likely the killer or the killers. I have to tell you, Jamie, when I first read the committal proceedings and the trial transcript, I thought Graham Stafford was as guilty as hell. I believed he was a killer. I listened to evidence of him lying to police. Why was his car at the body disposal site? What possible reason would he have for disposing of his hammer? Whilst he had made no omissions and denied involvement, it was indeed a strong circumstantial case supported by forensic results. When the Staffords asked me to make inquiries and, and I read through the evidence, I'd, um, one of the things that surprised me was that the defence barrister had been appointed to the case one day before the start of the trial. So, yeah. so I wondered how much research he had done into the trial. Mm. But I can tell you, when I started looking at the evidence, the, the whole thing was like a house of cards. It, it just came crashing down. 
couldn't believe what I was finding. It was it was like everything I looked at, there was a problem with it. This you know, this just didn't happen overnight, of course, but and and eventually <clears throat> had this list of problems with, with the evidence. And you don't get that as much with direct evidence. For instance, you have an eyewitness, they may have seen something, may not have seen something, but they're there, they're on the spot. But when it's circumstantial evidence, it's it's a bit more airy fairy. What do you do, Jamie, when you when you don't find one or two problems with a case, but you find more than 50? 50, 50 problems with a case. What what do you do? There would be investigators and prosecutors and barristers who would dream of finding one problem with a case, one problem that they could they could cast doubt on hmm. and get a different result from a from a trial. What do you do when you find fifty? Who who do you hmm. who do you turn to? Um, and I, like I couldn't go to the to the Goodner detectives. They had their result. They had a conviction. They're not going to be interested in. In um, in reinvestigating it and putting their hand up and saying, "Oh, we've made a mistake," so therefore, you, by default, you can't go to the DPP. This next clip is from Australian Story: Body of Evidence, Part Two. It features Daryl Giles, a former Sunday Mail reporter. In the early days of my investigations, I tried to make contact with Terry Holland, uh, Leanne's father, the police, the judiciary, the DPP, but none of that side want to talk to us. What I thought I could do was go to the detectives who had arrested Sean McFedrin for the second murder because I felt there was a connection there between the murders. So I thought, okay, I'll go and speak to them and say, hey, guys, I, I think you've got a problem here. I think he might be involved in the, in the Stafford case. Um, and so that's what I did. It was just bizarre. Like, okay, they didn't make any commitment or, or comment on what I, I told them. And in fact, there was only one there. But, but the next thing I hear is that there's efforts to charge me with perverting the course of justice. Like, like I'd done nothing wrong, but there was an attempt to, to charge me with a criminal offence. Now, if you just imagine for a moment if I had been charged. I would have spent the next one or two years defending myself and I would have been too busy investigating the Holland murder. And I just wondered if if that was what was the, the intent. And But like I said, I don't have any problems with the Queensland Police, but I can't say the same for s- specific detectives. When you heard that you were gonna, they were looking at charging you, did that um, cause you some stress? I was just aghast. I, I couldn't believe it. And... Um, I was gobsmacked, and then and then I started wondering why would they do that, and I've never found out for sure why they did it, but I have my suspicions. And then to compound matters, uh, I had a good working relationship with with Sean McFedrin's parents, particularly his his mother, because she had doubts about whether he was involved in the Holland case or not as well. I was welcome in their house, but after the visit to the to the detectives. Uh, next time I went around to the McFedrin house, I was informed I wasn't welcome there um, because they'd been told by detectives that I was spreading lies about Sean. Julianne Lowe was the, the 12-year-old who was murdered three weeks later after Leanne Holland was killed. That's that's right, in Goodna, one kilometre from where Leanne lived. And Sean McFedrin lived in the caravan park where Tricia Lynch, Leanne's best friend, lived. And Leanne used to spend time down there in the caravan park. 
and they all knew each other. Mm. So here we are. I have I have these problems with the case. I didn't know who to turn to, and the police police had shut their doors. So instead, I went to the media. I also invited and begged and requested police, past and present, that I knew, private investigators, journalists, criminalists, criminologists, anyone who would listen, to review the findings that I had and tell me where I'd gone wrong. I, I couldn't believe it, Jamie. I couldn't believe mm. that I had found so many problems with one case. Incredibly, no one came back and said, oh, you've done this wrong or you've done that wrong or, or this is doubtful. No one came back and said that. And I, I don't know whether they were reluctant to speak up or they didn't want to rock the boat or they couldn't find anything wrong, but, but, but that was the situation. That's very interesting. It was an interesting journey, I can tell you. At that point, were you still employed by the, by the Staffords or were you doing this um, on your own? I was engaged by them for about three months so in 1992. And then at, at some point after that, I went, oh, there's problems with this case, this, you know. And, um, and that's where I decided to just push on. And then you wouldn't read about it. 18 years later, in between all this, you know, there was a lot happening, of course, and uh, the conviction was quashed and there, was, there were appeals and there were, there were a lot of TV shows, a lot of TV programs, a lot of newspaper um, stories. In 2010, Jamie, my attention was drawn to a newspaper article regarding a retiring Crown prosecutor by the name of Michelle Laxman. It turns out that in his 30-year career, he had prosecuted numerous murders, rapes and other serious crimes and had only ever refused to prosecute one case. And that was a charge of murder against Graham Stafford as he had serious concerns about the evidence against Stafford and believed that he was probably innocent. He was interviewed by a journalist, and during the interview, this is what he had to say. This is not Vishal's real voice. I wrote the chapter about Mr Stafford a year ago, and my family encouraged me to speak out now because it was my belief and theirs that he was not guilty of the crime of murder. Among the many records I kept and from which I drew to write my memoirs is a copy of a memo I wrote on December the 4th, 1991, to the then Director of Prosecutions, Royce Miller, QC. At the time, I wrote, I refer to our brief discussion regarding this matter. Stafford has been committed for trial and the evidence is entirely circumstantial. There are features in this case that give rise to some doubt that Stafford is the offender in this crime. So the media has always been interested in this story and it's, you know, it was interested back then and it's also been interested recently and one of those people who decided to take a look at it was Michelle Laurie. And if you don't know who Michelle Laurie is, she is a Australian podcaster and a, and a comedian. And she's got her own podcast called Australian True Crime. Late last year, Michelle Laurie did two segments on her show about Graham Stafford and the Leanne Holland case. So I'm joined by Michelle Laurie from Australian True Crime Podcasts. G'day, Michelle. Hello. Hello. I'm glad to join you. I love what you're doing, but I can't imagine how much work it is. Look, it's uh, it's a lot of work, but I wouldn't trade it. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying it and I'm learning a lot. It is stressful, but at the same time, you know, you gotta you got to put the hard work in if you want the results. So I just wanted to uh, firstly say 
congratulations on your podcast because I'm a, I'm a massive fan. I love Australian true crime podcast. I love the way you deliver it, uh, your interview style. And, you know, firstly, I take my hat off to you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm the same. I love doing it. It's a lot of work, but uh, it's it's definitely worth every minute. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And look, just in relation to who killed Leanne Holland. Now, you've done a two-part series on this on your podcast. Um, how did you become aware of the case? Well, the author, Robin Bowles, brought it to us. Um, she's a controversial person in her own right. And every time we have Robin on our show, we get a lot of feedback from our listeners. Um, a lot of them don't like it when we have Robin on, to be honest, because she's got a lot of controversial theories about cases. For one thing, she she doesn't, and she'll say this quite openly, she doesn't believe everything that Joanne Lees has said about the disappearance of Peter Falconio, for example. And Okay. Yeah, so we were accused of victim blaming after that episode and um, but Robin, I mean, I think she's a great character and I think she, she certainly, she goes and does her own investigations when she writes her books. And, uh, I think she's a, she's a fascinating person and a great personality. So I love having Robin on. And one of the books that she wrote was about, uh, people who were in jail and who had been wrongly convicted. Some of whom, a lot of other people go, no, I think that person is in jail for all the right reasons. But one of the people that she wrote about was Graham Stafford. And so she said to us, you know what, you should you should really have Graham on the show. I think you'd, you'd like to meet him and like to talk to him. So we took her advice. And um, yeah, I, I, I knew a bit about the case because I was living in Queensland at the time when it all happened. Right. I was certainly old enough. I was, uh, I'd finished high school when this, when this happened, this murder. Um, but yeah, connecting with Graham again now, I... I learned so much more about it and I, I just couldn't believe it. You know, I wasn't there. I was only five years old when Leanne died. And, you know, so I haven't made my mind up and I don't really need to I, um, about what happened. I just, I just find the case so, it's just so crazy how it comes with a lot of heat. There's so many people with strong opinions and they're very vocal about it. I've never, ever in my, all my true crime sort of um, journey have I ever seen a case that has so much heat attached to it? No, me neither. And like you get, I just get flocked with emails about you know you're going to get sued and you know you're you, you're defending a child killer that sort of thing. But little do they remember, Graham Stafford's conviction was quashed. So really, we should be treating him with um with respect and and that he's not a child killer. We should be treating him like it's a it's a fresh case. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't understand that either. Uh, I do think these days that there's misinformation, uh, a lot of misinformation out there in the public due to the Channel 7 show. I think a yep. lot of people, for one thing, don't understand that the Queensland Police Service still hasn't released the review into the investigation because they leaked or somebody leaked the review to the Channel 7 show and then the, yep. that show, you know, picked through it and pulled bits of it out and presented bits of it. And so that now has sort of seeped into the consciousness as meaning that the review has been released. And so uh, we got so many emails saying, well, you know, they proved it. They released that report that said that they were right all along. And it's like, no, 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 they didn't release the report. That's the whole point. Um, 
that so that that TV show has convinced everyone that it's dead and buried, that it the report was released, it backed up the the investigation from back in the day. So mm. it's things like that that creep out into the national consciousness literally through ads. I mean, a, a lot of these people never even saw the TV show, but they saw the ads in the week before. Yeah. And uh, that creeps into the consciousness as a fact, which it's really not. And that's what you're yep. up against. I know. And, and I understand that you you did get swarmed by some uh, some people after your episodes about the case, you got you got flocked with emails, threatening stuff and legal action and whatnot. Well, that's it. Have you ever been in that situation before? Only once. Only I've ever, only once before received a legal letter, a proper one, um, someone threatening to sue me. And that was a pedophile whose son spoke to me about the fact that his father had abused the children in the family and offered them up to other pedophiles in the community. And that's the right. only person who's ever threatened uh, to sue me. And when I contacted the man and said, hey, you know, and, and he warned me, he said, don't be surprised because this is how he tries to silence us now. When we speak publicly, this is what he does. So he, he might try that. And um, uh, quickly this man fired off his own legal letter back and they just, and, and that was the last I heard about it. So unfortunately that's what happens within their family. So, I mean, that's the kind of person, I guess, who threatens to, who, who's, who's threatened to sue me in the past. But this time I remember there was a day when you and I both received this letter threatening to sue us, but then we never actually got a legal letter about it. So no one's ever actually tried to sue us. And I think from memory, your podcast hadn't even come out yet, Right. No, yeah, I, I was getting, you know, threatened, um, saying I'll be, I'll be suing you for everything you're worth. Defamation lawyers are listening. It's like, well, mate, we haven't actually released the podcast yet. We haven't even done a trailer yet, so I'm not really sure how we're, you know, going to get sued. And the other thing is, they they all come from fake emails. They don't even give us their name or their contact details. So how can we actually speak to them and validate what they've got to say? Like their their emails are like Angus Munger at gmail.com and stuff like that. So, I mean, you can't really take it too seriously, can you? No, and a lot of them are from the same IP address and all that kind of carry on. So what you, you end up with is you get weirdos like that, abusive sort of threatening uh, messages like that, and then you get the other ones from listeners saying, um, you know, what are you on about? Like, we all know that they released the report and it proved this and that. And it's like, well, no, that, that didn't happen. You just half heard an ad as you were walking through the lounge room one day. That's actually not what happened. So exactly, the culmination of all of that through your inbox is makes it a really intense experience. And of all, the only other story that's ever come close for me is Ivan Malat. Whenever we talk about Ivan, we get quite a bit of traffic because <laughs> um, there's quite yeah, a big community yeah. in Australia that believes that Ivan was wrongly convicted or that um, someone else was involved in his crimes as well and has has never been convicted. So that's another controversial one. That one comes mm-hmm. close, but but never but nothing like this. Nothing, no threats or anything like that. This is this one stands alone. Yeah, and I remember you saying to me earlier that. You know, I've really picked a winner to start with, or not start with, but, you yeah. know, to follow up from Ben and Valley Road with, because <laughs> after your two episodes aired, um, did you come to any conclusions about, you know, the case or, or do you come to conclusions when you do true crime or is it something you just 
Oh yeah. You know, think about, um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely I definitely do. Um I think first and foremost I just think that the Queensland Police Service needs to release the review. I think that's fundamental and that's very just the basic starting point for me. But secondly, I do think that a uh, an assault of this nature that was so brutal for an assault to be committed like that to be committed by a man who's never been known to commit uh, an act of violence before or since is weird. Um, I think that is weird. But having said that, weird stuff happens. I'm not saying nothing weird has ever happened in the world. So, you know, I'm, I'm open minded to, to that, but I, but I do think it's, I think it's unlikely that a person would commit one act of violence in their lives and it would be an attack of that magnitude. Yes. I'm kind of trying to be open-minded as well and not come to any conclusions quickly. Uh, as I said before, I was only five when it happened, so I, I wasn't watching the news mm. like a lot of other people were. Um, but there are things that make me doubt you know, what what has been said in the media and there's things that make me think, oh, maybe maybe he was good for it. But at the end of the day, we just have to, you know, put the evidence out as it is and uh, see see what the evidence says because that's all we can really trust. Yeah, absolutely. I think the one maggot in the boot is weird. I think there are a lot of pieces of the evidence that are strange. Uh, but mm. But for me, fundamentally, I've never heard of of anyone committing one act of violence in their life that brutal without ever having committed any other violence. I've never heard of that. That's right, yeah. Without any drugs involved, without any catalyst involved, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I 100% know what you're saying. And, you know, and and Michelle, I'd like to say, you know, a sincere thank you uh, for your support. You've shown me throughout my podcasting journey. You've given me a lot of advice. You've answered texts and phone calls and um, it's been really helpful for me because I'm navigating this, you know, I'm pretty new at it and you, you're you a veteran. You, you've been there and done that. So I, I really thank you for giving me that time and showing me um, the support you have. And I encourage everybody to go and listen to Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie. No worries. Thank you. I love your work. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, mate. See ya. Okay, so you found quite a few problems with the case, Graeme, as you were investigating. And you've mentioned to me a few times now about red flags. And there's also a section on your website, whokilledleanholland.com, about red flags. For a start, those who, who don't understand or, or aren't aware of what a red flag is, it's a, it's a metaphor for something signalling a problem. And the problems start on day one, Jamie. Yep. Uh, Leanne was reported missing uh, on the Tuesday night at the Goodner Police Station by Graham Stafford, uh, Melissa Holland and Terry Holland. Now, ordinarily, my experience is that these things bump along for days, weeks, months uh, until some evidence comes forward that it's more than just a missing person. People right. have There are many, many cases where people have been reported missing and nothing has happened for months. On the Wednesday morning after Leanne Holland... Uh, was reported missing, a major police investigation commenced at the Goodner Police Station. Absolutely no doubt about it. They they established a forward command post. They set up the missing person 
log, as we mentioned in Chapter 4, the, the, which was called a running sheet. There were cards compiled that morning with the title Murder of Leanne Holland and Homicide. Before a body's found or before any evidence to suggest that there's been anything else other than just a runaway or a missing person, right? The body was still 36 hours away or more from being found. Um, probably was 8 a.m. on the Wednesday. She wasn't found till 2 p.m. on the Thursday. So, yeah, 30, 30 something hours between that time and when the body was found. They weren't even sure it was a missing person or not because they sent police around to uh, speak to her uh, friends and known uh, associates to see if she'd actually run away or not. So on the one hand, is it a missing person? But on the other hand, it's a homicide. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's no doubt the Queensland police would have been under pressure. Um, after all, she's a 12-year-old female child. Absolutely. There is a history of women going missing in Brisbane, western suburbs. A woman went missing at, um, at Gales, about um, five kilometres away. She was never found and believed murdered. In 1990, another woman went missing in Riverview, about six kilometres away. She'd never been found, believed murdered. Mm-hmm. What did the Queensland police know at 8am on Wednesday, the 25th September 1991, that would explain why a Ford command post and a major incident job log would be created. It's it's never been publicly stated. I'm suggesting they had been told something by someone indicating that a murder had occurred and that Graham Stafford was the offender. When you look at it on the on, on the face of it, you know, you report a twelve year old missing and the police dive into action and they start setting up a, a command post and they, they search for her and it's it's pretty serious. You'd look at that and think, well, good on them, good job. They, they're getting out there and doing it and I, I would think that too. But what you're saying is that they they might have had information to come to that conclusion. Uh, well, the fact that Graham Stafford was the, the main, sole and only suspect from day one suggests to me that they'd been told something. There was a comment in the in the job log that the detectives who were on duty at Goodner on that day were not sufficiently experienced to handle this type of investigation. Okay. Uh, now, hang on. We're talking about a missing person investigation and detectives aren't experienced enough to handle that? Well. Mm. And other, other detectives were brought in on overtime and in 1991 uh, bringing it Police in on overtime didn't happen lightly. Okay. And then, you know, we've talked about the the pedophile who we call Pete. He stated that on that morning he he was sent to the Holland household by detectives to suss out what was going on. Which is just baffling, isn't it? It's absolutely baffling that there would be someone, a criminal informant, that's sent to a house to gather evidence or suss out what's going on. You can't get your head around that. Well, yeah, I struggle with it. On that, it must have been busy at the Holland household on Wednesday morning. Detectives went there, 
the pedophile went there, forensics went there. Everyone was at the Holland House. And just while we're talking about Pete, Pete is who you named as suspect three for, the, for this case. That's right. So I spoke to Pete and I had a phone number for him. I dialed it and to my surprise, it was him. And he, I, I told him who I was and he politely refused to take part in the podcast or in any interview. I did ask if he would give me his position or his opinions on the case and he said no. He had said everything he needed to say on a TV production he was involved in. And he doesn't think there's a need for another podcast. And then you wish me luck and terminated the phone call. So I've spoken to him now, but that's as far as we're going to go at the moment. Well, all I can say is um, if he's listening, um, the invitation is still there to come on and and give us his side of the story. Yep, absolutely. Previously, we spoke about big ticket items and and perhaps, you know, when we talk about um, the evidence um, that there are problems with, we should start with the big ticket items. Yeah. And and probably the most critical piece of evidence in this case is the time of death. We, yeah. We've we've said before that if Graham Stafford didn't kill her between 8am and 4.30pm on the Monday, he didn't kill her. Simple as that. When did she die? And, you know, and we've talked about the time of death and how you calculate it with maggots and the growth rate of maggots and, and stuff like that. But it's really hard to pinpoint, isn't it? It's very, very fluid. The original pathologist, she wouldn't commit other than on or about the 23rd of September. Which is the Monday. Which is the Monday. The entomologist said either between 4 and 6 p.m. on the Monday or Tuesday morning up until 8.30 a.m. She put it at probably 80% on the Monday. So 80% Monday, 20% Tuesday. Yeah, okay. Now, even that, though, is a problem because at the very outside, she said late Monday afternoon, in other words, late Monday afternoon or early Tuesday morning. And that puts Graham out of the frame as well because he only had up until 4.30 p.m. And after 4.30 p.m., he was with Melissa. He was with Melissa and others. Terry, Mm. Tuesday, Mm -hmm. he was at work. Even on the original evidence... Uh, it was very difficult to put him in the frame. But it gets worse because just I just happened to, uh, when I was making the inquiries, I just happened to ask what the temperatures were that uh, she was given to calculate the growth rate of the maggots. And I determined that that was from um, the temperature gathering station or the meteorological station at uh, at Archerfield. And for anyone who's in southeast Queensland, they would know that the western suburbs, particularly towards Ipswich, are a lot hotter than Brisbane. Yeah. And Archerfield is some 19 kilometres in a straight line from where the body was found, mm. whereas the closest meteorological station is only seven kilometres away. The, the temperatures there, they're on average two degrees hotter than they were from Archerfield. So, so I went back to the same... Crown entomologist, the one that the Crown of the police used to calculate the the temperatures, it wasn't the case. I went and found another entomologist who who gave a different finding. I went back to the same one that they used and said, "Look, you know the average temperatures are two degrees um, higher for that area that where the body was found. Would that make a difference in the in the growth rate and therefore the time of death calculation?" She said, "It'll make a significant difference." So she agreed to recalculate. 
the, the time of death based on the more accurate temperatures. And with that, she came up with there was a 40 to 50% chance of death occurring on the Monday afternoon, which means a 50 to 60% chance of it occurring Tuesday morning, which is amazing, stunning, really. Yeah. There's more because that was calculated that the body was exposed to the elements, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And it, but it was the police case that the body was in the boot of the car. Right. And everyone knows that the boot of a car is hotter than than outside a car. Mm-hmm. But just to be sure, I I got some um, temperature recording equipment, put it in the boot of Graham Stafford's car and placed it in Red Bank Plains for three days at around the same temperature time as it was in September 1991 and recorded the temperatures over those days. Okay. You know, the temperature in the boot rose well above 40 degrees. The defence then asked the, the same entomologist to make calculations using five different scenarios, the body in the boot, wrapped, unwrapped, exposed to the elements and so on. And all the calculations he made came back that the time of death was Tuesday. Yet somehow when the police did their review, they've come back with uh, before 4.30pm on Monday. So I'll be interested to see how they arrived at that. Just talking about the time of death, the method you're talking about is is about um – using the maggot, right, to, to work backwards. Is that correct? That's right. It's very difficult to calculate the time of death, Jamie, particularly where uh, death has occurred some days or weeks beforehand. One method of doing it is by going calculating the growth rates through the various stages uh, of, of maggots that uh, they find with the body. Yeah. Now, but, but it's very... It's very fluid. There's so many variations. There's so many variables exposed to the elements, not exposed to the elements, in a boot, out of a boot, wrapped, unwrapped. So it, there's so many variables, but it, it gives an approximate idea of the time of death. And, yes. And that's why you, you really have to keep an open mind and say, well, she possibly died on the Monday, but she may well have died on the Tuesday as well. Mm. You know, you really have to do your homework and make sure that that the alibis for all the suspects aren't just up to four thirty p.m. on the Monday, and that their their alibis for the Tuesday and Wednesday were eliminated as well. Did you make inquiries when you were asking um, this entomologist? Did you find out whether maggots will appear if she was dead and in the boot and didn't see the outside again? Can a maggot still? appear there or does it have to be outside where flies can lay their larva there? How, how does that all work? She made the comment um, that she's seen flies lay eggs in um, ICUs in hospitals. Okay. It seems to be as soon as the person dies, bang, the flies are there. And that's why they say when uh, you're a police officer and you're going to a job where someone hasn't been seen for a while and they say, go and knock on the front door and you see flies buzzing around, it's never good. Yep. No, that's right. Last chapter, I spoke to criminal barrister Joe Crowley about some of the blood evidence. I speak to Joe again, and this time he tells us how he became involved in the case and what problems he found with that blood evidence. We had you on last episode and we, we spoke about some evidence, but I didn't formally introduce you to who you are and, and, and how you became involved in this case. So would you mind giving us and the listeners some background about who you are and how you heard about the Leanne Holland case. Yeah, sure. I am a, a barrister 
and I also um, lecture at university uh, in law. And I was um, in my office at university, down at Bond University years ago, and one of the um, the the deputy dean came in and asked me um, if I was interested in helping out on this case. Um, the law faculty at Bond had been approached by a criminologist who um, wanted to know if there was any lawyers who'd help getting the case sort of back into the courts. Uh, and I, you know, young and full of enthusiasm. Sure. And, um, uh, you know, and was happy to jump on board. I wasn't, I was a bit skeptical on myself. I wasn't sure there was anything in it um, at first, but, um, you know, I was happy to give it a look and, and talk to people about it and give them my views. But, uh, you know, the further I sort of dug into it, the, um, you know, the more I found that the case was just a terrible, terrible miscarriage of justice. And what year was this, Joe? That would have been 2006, I think. Yeah. We, we, so to get it back in the court, we had to do a pardon, a petition of pardon. Um, that took about 18 months to write. Um, and we put it in, I think in late 07 or 08. And it took well, six months or more for them to get an answer. And then we we're back in the courts by October 09. And and last time we spoke, you made an interesting comment to me. You said that, um, you know, show me some evidence that Graham Stafford's guilty and I'll, I'll believe it, but mm. you haven't seen that yet. No. So, you know, to start with, you were sceptical of the case. You know, you, you probably thought, oh, yeah, here's another guy who thinks he's innocent. Yeah, sweet. But when you started looking into it, you actually found genuine problems. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah, yeah, the case is just um, yeah, it's terrible. Out of all the evidence that you've looked at, what would be the most problematic thing for you that you've seen? That's a hard one to answer. There's so many, but sort of certainly one that jumps out at me as a as a lawyer and as somebody who um, you know runs trials is the way that the um, scientific evidence, particularly the evidence about blood in the house, the way that was presented to the jury, because. Um, you know, the jury were given the misleading impression that there was blood all through the house. Sure. Uh, but in fact, the police investigation revealed that there was really only five spots of blood which were referable to Leanne or any of her siblings or father who were in the house. So, um, it, which is a very different story um, than the one that the jury eventually convicted Graham on. So that was a huge uh, issue for me. So originally they did the Sangor test and they, they get hits everywhere. But when yes. they go back to the laboratory, basically gets rid of 90% of that and there's only five or so spots that actually has Leanne's blood. Is that correct? Leanne's or her sisters or her fathers or her brothers. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, but one of the problems just in terms of a, a, you know, a barrister who's trying the case what happened was Graham gives um, a long interview with the police, which is recorded on video and audio. Yeah. And that's played to the jury. And in that, the police um, say to him things like, why is there blood in the bucket, uh, the mop and bucket at the back door? You know, and Graham says, oh, I don't know. And they say, well, why is there blood, you know, in the bathroom? Why is there blood on the front stairs? Why is there blood in the and they and they accuse him or seek answers from him about all of these items that said to have blood on them. And in fact, all of the items I name later turn out not to have blood at all. And the jury never hear that. It, all the jury hear is the police accusing him of, for example, or saying that there is blood found in the mop and bucket at the back door. Um, 
and there isn't blood in the mop and bucket at the back door, but they never told that. They, yeah. All they hear is that from the police interview. And then, you know, so from a, from a point of view of a barrister who's, who's wondering how is it that the jury convicts this man, you know, it's because of things like this, because the story is never explained to them. Mm. Uh, and that's what, I, you know, that in relation to the blood evidence, I just found um, it just was gobsmacked. The amount of blood that they said there was in the house initially was not the case. There was just a few spots in his boot on removable items in his boot and a few in the bathroom, like above the above the um, shower curtain. That, that was about One it. on the shower curtain, I think, yeah, and then one above the shower rose with the head of the shower where the water comes out. Um, yeah, there was just – and I think there was a spot of blood on the um, in the bathroom on one of the um, – you know, low down on the floor, the, uh, on the wall just close to the floor. Um, and then the other spots of blood are out on the um, uh, the front stairs where we know Leanne had walked down the stairs with a, a bleeding foot. Mm. So, but I mean, an example I think of of the misleading impression that all this created is is looking at what the trial judge says to the jury. So at the end of a trial, um, uh, the judge sums up the evidence for the jury, and the judge in that trial. Um, used phrases like um, the scattered blood, that it's in diverse positions, it's unusual positions, the amount of blood, the places in which it was found, um, and he repeats this over and over and over uh, to the jury. So, you know, this reinforces, I think, in their mind that there's blood through all through the house Yeah. when, in fact, that's, yeah, not the case at all. Well, well thank you, Joe. I really appreciate that, mate. No problems. You will hear more from Joe next chapter. I asked him about that polygraph test that Graham Stafford declined to take on a TV documentary. Graham, I've, I've been intrigued by the bank teller evidence and you first told me about this when, when we met in Sydney for the first time and we looked at doing this podcast. We touched on this subject of the bank teller in Chapter 1. Graham Crowley and I were standing in front of the Commonwealth Bank branch in Goodna. When I first met Graham to discuss this podcast, he explained the bank teller's evidence and its significance. Here's that conversation we had. Are you across the evidence of the um, of the bank teller? Mm-hmm. That to me is the most significant evidence yeah. of the whole case. What, uh, what happened was this: Afshir's reported missing. Mm-hmm. Audrey Tom was a bank teller at the Combank down in Queen Street. Mm. At Goodna. Yeah. And she went to the to the Goodna police and said, This girl, that missing girl, mm. withdrew two hundred dollars out of this man's account. And I can prove that it was her. Let me find the chapter. So Herbert Holland is a Herbert Holland, yeah. The cops went and saw him and he was like seventy mm-hmm. at the time. He'd he'd be dead now, I reckon. And he gave evidence that no, he made the withdrawal personally and it was a male teller and he hadn't seen Leanne for weeks or months or for a long time. He didn't ask her to withdraw money and she didn't withdraw money. So, that, so that's that's his story. He's served by a, a male teller. He was, he, he was not accompanied by her and she was not there and that was the only withdrawal that day. Right? Audrey Tymon says she served a young female fitting the description of Leanne Holland the young female was making a withdrawal on the account of Herbert Holland in the sum of $200. She maintained the withdrawal slip supported her testimony. 
the initial A on the bottom left hand of the corner of the slip where the teller where the word teller appears. Okay. Now Herbert says he was, he was served by a male teller. Mm-hmm. There was no male teller working that day at that branch. Okay. That's the first thing. Yeah. Secondly, there was an A somewhere. A there. Yep. It says teller. Yeah. A yeah. Which says that was Audrey. Mm-hmm. This is her mark, the only employee using teller A. Because it was a third-party transaction, that means someone who's not a party to that account mm-hmm. making uh, the withdrawal, she physically verified the signature with the specimen held on the file at the branch bank. She put another mark through the signature to verify she had confirmed this. So because it wasn't Herbert Holland withdrawing the money, mm-hmm. she physically went away and checked the signature. Mm-hmm. And wow. went, well, that's his. And she's given her five twenties and two fifties. Yeah. She recognised the transaction as third party because a young girl usually would not be a signature joint account with considerable funds. Paid particular attention to third party transaction because not long before this she had been criticised for handling another third party transaction which turned out to be fraud. Okay. She explained that the production of the passbook would support she computer generated a series of numbers that caused me printing the passbook and very after benefits. She was assigned Terminal 21. Therefore, the computer generated the numbers right hand after would be 416521. Mm-hmm. Right? 416521. Yeah. She did that <coughs> transaction. There's, there's absolutely... That is bulletproof. Mm. And I, I can't wait to see how they dealt with yeah. that. Because it's significant for a number of reasons. QPS say the last confirmed sighting is her is at... 10.30am, mm-hmm. heading back up to the house. Mm-hmm. This didn't happen till 11 o'clock. Yeah. Right? Well, maybe a bit after 11. 11.05. Because that puts her alive until at least 11.05. Yeah. The, the window to commit the murder is getting less and less and less. Yeah. Because at 11.45 he's at um, Big Rooster or... Red Rooster, yeah. Red Rooster. After 12 o'clock he's at um, Arthur Powers. Then he's mm. sighted at the at the store, at the shopping centre, and then he's at the at the car wash. Mm-hmm. And there's all these conf- confirmed sightings, so when did he actually kill her? Mm. But it gets better. I went and I, I went and tried to track down old Herbert, mm. right? And I go to his house at, um, at Goodner, where he'd lived for 30-something years, mm. and the people said, no, they sold up not long after the murder, and we bought it. I said, you get a forwarding address? And he said, he specifically refused to give. He said, we asked him for, for a forwarding address so we could redirect mail on that. He specifically refused to, to give an address of where he was going to. Anyway, so I tracked him down to out there past Ipswich at, a, at an estate out there and knocked on the door, went and knocked on the door. The first words he said to me when I opened the door and told him who it was, how'd you find me? Hmm. Then mum comes the door. How did you find us? I thought that was not, you know, I can help you or no, it wasn't me. How did you find us? So you can see if this evidence is correct, which it appears to be, it's quite compelling and very significant. It puts Leanne alive, often out 35 minutes later, 
than what was claimed. So that's it for Chapter 5. Thank you very much for listening. Join us next time when we continue to explore the discrepancies with the Crown case or the prosecution case. As we said before, there are quite a few and it's going to take more than one chapter to get through them. We'll see you in two weeks and thank you very much. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. It was recorded, edited and theme song by Jamie Pultz. It was mixed and mastered by Alex Rottier at Paperbark Studios. I'd also like to give a special shout-out to my auntie Vivi over in Texas who provided some background music. Those piano pieces that you heard, that's her talented fingers playing those, so thank you, auntie Vivi. I was contacted on Instagram by a guy named Baba Beats and he provided some of the background music you heard in this episode. Blown away by the kindness of strangers sometimes and, you know, for someone who doesn't know me to provide me with some music, legend, thank you very much. You can check him out at BVBV Beats on Instagram and also on Spotify and SoundCloud. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland. You can also head to our websites to read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe. All links will be on the show notes. Thanks for your support and your feedback during this podcast. It means a lot to us. And from now on, episodes will be released every second Tuesday. I'd also like to thank a few companies for helping me produce a better sounding podcast. Zoom, Audio Technica, Yamaha, Sound Theory, and Isotope. These companies have really helped me up my game, which gives you a better listening experience. Thanks for listening to Who Killed Leon Holland. Cheers.